The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the <laughs> Paul Leslie Hour. We're joined by pianist, conductor, musical director, producer, and composer Frank Owens. He's recorded and performed with Johnny Mathis, Lena Horn, Chubby Checker, Barbara McNair, Petula Clark. Bob Dylan, we could keep on going. Frank Owens was also the first musical director for David Letterman's first television show, which was on in the morning, called The David Letterman Show. Lots and lots of stories here. So thanks so much to Frank Owens for joining us. So, Frank, tell us, where were you born? Actually, I was born in Poughkeepsie, New York. My mother, she did not raise me. My foster mother raised me from three months old and I grew up in Harlem on 129th Street and she was a domestic my foster mother was my biological mother in fact in those days I used to say my real mother <laughs> but I don't think I knew the word biological but uh, she wasn't able to raise me or to keep me but I did know who she was she would come by and visit on occasion but my foster mother worked as a domestic and she interested the people in, for whom she worked in me, you know, she thought I was talented enough, and a couple of my piano teachers were as a result of her, you know, going to bat for me and advocating for me and thinking that I had a talent that should be developed. So I go, I, I owe her all the credit. So as I said, I grew up in Harlem, and I was born at Poughkeepsie. Yes. So if you could describe growing up, what a typical day in the life of a young Frank Owens was like, what would you say? <laughs> Well, I played with my friends. You know, we would play different games. Stickball would be among them. Uh, it was an engine, engine number nine, running down Chicago line. Can you t tell me the correct time? You know, we had games like that, hide-and-seek, of course, that sort of thing. Lodies, I don't think anybody would remember that but me, in which we had bottle caps from either soda soda bottles or from whiskey bottles, and we'd, we would fill them with uh, peelings from oranges and and or so in lemons and, and use them we would draw something on the street and uh, like a square and it was like kind of like marbles but it was called lodies you know and then we had ring olivia so we had games like that growing up in harlem and i played stickball and i loved being there and in fact uh, well i went to music and art high school in my early years and uh, i got in on you know i guess as a musician music and art was a great school for me because uh it, 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 you know, they, they were very talented people there, and without regard for race or anything of the sort, they were just interested in artistic pursuits. So that would be a great, uh, you know, probably growing up in Harlem, yes, we're going to music in our high school. I went to junior high school, of course, also, and I was bullied, you know, they stole my, my Captain Midnight ring, and, you know, things like that happened. You know, the bully, bullying happens, of course, today as well. So it's just unfortunate that it does happen like that. But I guess a day in Harlem was like if I didn't, during the summertime, we played stickball and things of that sort. And we also had roller skates. And uh, the, the best kinds of skates were called Chicago skates. Chicago's, they were called. They were freewheeling, ball-bearing skates, and uh, we would skate. I also had a bicycle. In those days, getting a 10-speed bike was quite something, but I did buy one. I earned enough money to buy one, and uh, I used to ride. My friend and I, Russell Morgan, we would ride from New York to Queens. I don't know how we did it. We rode on the Grand Central Parkway, 
and uh, we we rode to Queens and Jamaica and things like that. I don't know how we did it. We rode across the 59th Street Bridge in Manhattan, the Queensboro Bridge. So we did a lot of things like that that, of course, we wouldn't be able to do today. So growing up in Harlem was kind of, kind of special. There were gangs, of course, too. I think the street that on which I lived, the gangs that, that was named the Bachelors. So they had uh, gang wars and they made, I think, some kind of guns and things like that. So. But it wasn't as deep a crime thing as it is now. You know, people get killed. I don't know if we got killed then. So, but that, that was a typical Harlem for me, you, you might say. And what about the music that you liked as a young person? Tell us about the. Well, my foster mother liked and lived and listened to classical music, so that's what I did. I listened to classical music, and that was my interest. You know, I didn't know anything about pop music. Uh, I think I knew about Jose Iturbi, who was a very popular f- pianist in films, and I knew about Andre Castellanos. Uh, he was a conductor. In fact, he was married to Lily Pons, I believe. And I would stand in front of the mirror and pretend to be a conductor and all that sort of thing. So I grew up wanting to be a classical pianist uh, of U- European music, of course. And then my friend, Johnny Durrell, who lived in the house next to me, I lived at 2 West, he lived at 4 West, went to his house one day, and he had, uh, you know, we had records in those days. I didn't have a record player. And he played me Earl Garner. I covered the waterfront, and from then I was smitten. And I listened to Earl Garner, and I went back to my house to try to replicate what I had heard. Earl Garner played in a lot of flat keys, like B-flat, D-flat, A-flat, that sort of thing. But I thought it was the key of D like David. So I played I Cover the Waterfront in D, not realizing that my piano was a half a tone flat, you know. But listening to Earl Garner got me started in my uh, foray into popular music or jazz, you might say. And so that's how I got interested in music. And then I went on the Apollo Amateur Show and uh, as a pianist, and I played uh, a Gennaro Garner selection, I forget what it was called, and I won first prize for two weeks. And then after the third, second week, I said, well, I can play another song. I want people to know I can play another song. And I played Why Do I Love You? from Showboat, and of course nobody had heard of Showboat necessarily. The audience wasn't tuned into that, and I only got third prize. And then from then on, I would hang out in the basement where they would do the auditions for the amateur show, and I would be a real brat, and, uh, you know, the pianist would be playing, and I'd say, no, no, that's the wrong key. It should be beef. It should be this, blah, 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 blah. And one of them said to me, look, you can have this job after a while. And so I did. So I used to play for the Wednesday night amateur show, and that started me on my career. Uh, among the performers that was uh, on the show, the amateurs, was Barbara McNair. And uh, we got to be an item for about six months or so, my first love affair. <laughs> so then from then on, I, I guess uh, my name spread around, and I got called for gigs, and we had a little band, and we would play dances and things of that sort. So, Am I rambling on too much? Probably. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all, no. I appreciate it. Tell us about Errol Garner's influence. It's something that love for his work has never left you? No, it has not. Uh, I've done several Aragona concerts, the last of which was, I think it was 2007, uh, down at Tribeca, which is a college on Chambers Street in Lower Manhattan. That was my last last concert I did of Aragona's music, remembering and or celebrating Aragona. And then, you know, as I listened to him, I absorbed his style. And so I have another concert coming up next year at Aaron Davis Hall, which is right close to City College, and I'm going to be doing another Aragona concert. He was a great influence on me. 
and uh, I learned lots of material, lots of songs. I learned how to play popular music and jazz, etc. When I was growing up, I didn't know much about jazz, you know. I knew about George Shearing, and I knew about, uh, say, I didn't know much about Art Tatum either. You know, I knew so little about popular music, and as I probably should have, you know, learned how to play or learned how to listen to the people of that sort. You know, Art Tatum was the master, of course. So in, in intervening years, of course, I've absorbed lots of styles, and I play jazz and popular music. But uh, for the down here in Washington, I play for the ballet classes. I get a chance to exploit my classical playing, and I do that. But uh, classical music is my first love. But Aragorn was a great influence, and uh, I always, I guess in my music, you can always find influences of Aragorn. What is it you like about your chosen instrument, the piano? Well, I think it's the easiest instrument to play. I tell anybody that. I don't teach piano because I don't think I would have the patience to do so. But uh, it's the easiest instrument to play because the notes are already formed. Most people think that how can you be, your hands can be independent of one another, but, you know, they can be once you learn how to play. I learn how to play by ear, and it's helped me a lot because I can play certain symphonic excerpts, and I use them in my ballet classes as well, and uh, that's been my influence. But uh, it's it's my, I guess music could you could say it'd be my first love in, in a way, <laughs> and classical music is that. But And I get to do um, some concerts, uh, some jazz improvisation as well. I play an open mic every Friday up in New York. I go back and forth from here in Washington to New York, and I play an open mic, uh, which is sponsored by Kobe Narita. She's a producer of an entrepreneur of jazz, etc. She's helped many people, and I do that. I play for singers and uh, tap dancers and instrumentalists and all of that. Most of my career has been with singers, and the first of which was Johnny Mathis, as you mentioned. But I played for Johnny Mathis, I played for John Denver, and recorded with John Denver, Chubby Checker, Johnny Nash, Melba Moore, Frida Payne, Petula Clark, of course, Andrew Kanay, Keith David, uh, Connie Francis. You know, I've, it's a list of people, a very di- diverse array of singers that I've accompanied and worked with, and um, I guess I I accompany quite well if I say so myself. <laughs> so that's what a lot of people have said about you is that you're a wonderful accompanist. Oh, I'm glad they said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, of all of those singers, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. <laughs> was there one that, to you, was just the absolute, just most consummate singer? Just the wow. It's such an honor to be playing piano with them. Uh, well, that's a good question. I guess you could say Lena Horne would be among the choices. She was quite special. You know, when I was much younger, and I listened to, there's an album of Lena Horne at the Waldorf with Nat Brandywin and the orchestra. Nat Brandywin, incidentally, moved to Vegas, and he had the orchestra at Caesar's Palace, which I played there many times as well, mostly with Petula Clark. But Lena... Uh, I never thought I would be, you know, playing for a person such as Lena Horne. And it so happened that uh, I was called to do so. She had a show on Broadway called Lady and Her Music. And I didn't play that show, but they had heard of me. Harold Wheeler, who is a well-known and a consummate artist and uh, pianist and musical director, he was one time was in charge of Dancing with the Stars, that sort of thing. So uh, they had called him and they had asked about me, and he said to them, Oh, you'll never get Frank. He's too busy. <laughs> How dare he? In any case, I, I did get called to Lena, and that was quite special for me. So I would say she was the consummate artist, you know. She was special, 
she herself didn't think much of herself. You know, she said if she ever came back in life, she wanted to be Tina Turner, that sort of thing. <laughs> I would also say that Petula Clark was a consummate artist. You know, she was so professional. I was with her for at least 10, 12 years or so. And I asked to also give kudos to Frida Payne, who is uh, not well known in a lot of circles. They think of her as a rhythm and blues singer because she had a big hit with Bring the Boys Home. But she grew up listening to jazz singers, Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald, that sort of thing. And so I'm, I, in fact, I'm going to be performing with her in January, coming up uh, next month in New Jersey, Hackensack. Not Hackensack, Hackettstown. <laughs> but I play for her occasionally, too. So I say those are the three singers whom I, I guess you could call the, the, the highlights of my life. I did a concert with Fishula Clark at Albert Hall, and that was one of the highlights of my life. In fact, they're going to release a CD of that particular performance, you know. I also got to give kudos to John Denver, you know, because he was, I've done lots of things with him as well. And, uh, you know, he was such a gentle guy and such a generous guy. And we would do takes. And he would say, does everybody like that take? And if any of us didn't like it, we would do the whole thing over. You know, he wanted to please the musicians and so it's kind of hard to narrow it down to one particular choice, you know. So, But uh, I've been fortunate to work with the people I've worked with. Chubby Checker, of course, who was quite in the, at the time, you know, with the twist and all that sort of stuff. So he's a little bit peeved at the fact that he hasn't been recognized in the Hall of Fame, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because because of that particular twist, you know, the, of the twist, which was written by Hank Ballard, you know, he got less of a claim, and that was a big record. Also, if I may say about big records, I think I did Tyriola Ribbon for Tony Orlando and Dawn, and I came up with a particular figure that identifies the song, and as a result of my innovation, uh, he got a show out of it. It was one of the biggest songs in all over the world, you know, so it's just hard to narrow things down. <laughs> so you put me on the spot, but I'm <laughs> shutting up. <laughs> well, the thing that sticks out in my mind there with that list is just the incredible diversity from Chubby Checker to Johnny Mathis to yes, Lena Horn to, yes. you know, all of these. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Johnny Mathis. He's been in the news a bit lately because he's releasing this. I don't know if I've ever heard of a box set with 66 yes, so discs. <laughs> that's right. That is correct, yes. Well, I was with Johnny when I auditioned for him. Uh, we were at, uh, in, at Steinway Hall, which is on 57th Street in New York, and uh, I was called to audition. Klaus Ogerman, a well-known arranger, he's no longer with us, but he said that they were looking for, Johnny was looking for a, a, a conductor, a, a pianist. So I auditioned uh, in a studio there at Steinway Hall on 57th Street. Ahead of me was Linton Garner, who happens to be Errol Garner's brother. And he auditioned, and then I auditioned, and Johnny chose me. I would imagine because of the fact that we were close in age or maybe because he liked my playing. I didn't know very much about anything. And I didn't know how to arrange. I didn't know how to give a downbeat. I didn't know anything about conducting. But he took me on the road with him. And when we got to Vegas, he had me learn conducting lessons from a conductor there named Antonio Morelli, who was the conductor of the Sands Orchestra. This is back in 57, 58, around there. So I got to give him credit for doing that, you know. So he was—he uh, had a voice, of course, in New York. There was a Colony Records store, and uh, you would hear—he would play certain records of the time that were trending, and he, he would hear "Chances Are" or "But Not for Me." Uh, it's not for me to say and things like that. So 
Johnny was the first of the many singers that I've worked for that I must give credit for for helping me to gain a foothold in learning how to correct, I mean, how to conduct and <laughs> and how to arrange, et cetera, et cetera. So from Johnny Mathis came others, but I give him, I give him credit for that. In fact, I saw him last year in Washington here, or I should say Bethesda. He was at Strathmore Music Center, and I went backstage and left a note, and he announced me from the audience. You know, he was so thrilled because we hadn't seen each other in years, you know, and uh, it was kind of nice. So it was a wonderful meeting when we I went backstage and saw him and we hugged and talked and reminisced about the things that I've done and that he's done and all that so I, I'm, I'm very special, that was a special moment and he was a special performer for me and he's still doing it all the time he's got the voice that uh, people like to hear so he's, he's constant, he's not a one hit wonder <laughs> so How would you describe his personality? He's at the time when I was working with him, he was kind of modest, you know. He didn't like to necessarily give autographs. And so John Noga was the manager. He and Helen Noga were his managers. And uh, they would sometimes sign autographs for him on his behalf. He was kind of, how shall I say, he didn't move a lot on stage. And he was kind of shy. And he didn't really like to be, he wasn't animated as he is now. He's much more confident now. He's got that boyish charm. He still has that. And he's just, uh, people love his voice, and he's learned to appreciate audiences, and he will now sign autographs as well. But at the time, he didn't hardly move. I can tell you a little story about him. When we were at Vegas uh, back in those years, he would sing, say, Prince, Chances Are, or It's Not For Me To Say, and he would hold his hands. He has a way of holding the mic in front of him and clasping the mic with his hands. And the person in the light booth would remind Johnny, he said, Johnny, you know, you have a makeup on your face, but your hands don't have the same color. <laughs> so at the time, he did not know that, but it was a great tip, you know, so he did learn that. But he was kind of shy, and not anymore. He's much more motivated, he's much more animated, has much more confidence in himself, and he's been doing it for such a long time. So I would say that from the time that he was shy and uh, not moving a lot, he moves on stage, and he's got a diverse array of uh, material that he sings, Latin, everything. So he's, he's a wonder. Did you do any recording with Bob Dylan at one point? Yes, I did. Highway 60, yeah, I'm the one that did that. Highway 61, I think it is, it's called, yes. And uh, I don't know that I'm on the final takes. I, I know that a guy named, uh, not Bob Johnson, took over from Tom, Tom something or other was the producer originally. And uh, I was called to do that particular session, along with some other musicians, Paul Griffin, for instance, and I think Joe Mack was on bass, so Joe Mack, I think he called himself Joe Mack. Al Cooper got in on a fluke. I don't know how that happened, you know, but he wasn't supposed to be on the session, but he must have come to the studio and they put him on the session. I can't think of the producer's name. It might say Tom something or other. I can't think of his last name. But yeah, we did it in, uh, in the 60s someplace at A&R Studio on 7th Avenue. And there were several sessions but I was on at least one of them. So I think I'm on Highway 61 or, or like a Rolling Stone or one of those things like that, you know. So that that's me. Yes, I did do that. How did you come to work with Bob Dylan? Uh, I was called, you know, in those years we would do sessions, you know, jingles and things of that sort. And uh, I got a call from the, uh, I guess it was the contractor or Tom, I wish I could remember his name, but he was one of the first producers of the Bob Dylan uh, set of, you know, of tunes. 
and I got a call to come and play. I'd never played for a folk artist before, and it was kind of nice to get a call, and that's what happened, you know. I pride myself on the fact that I could play all types of music, although I envied Paul Griffin and Richard T. Those guys were into R&B a lot. In fact, I did an album called Brown and Serve, which is not a great album, but it was mostly R&B tunes that I did, so... But uh, that's how I got the call to do that. So that that was how it was. Somebody just, I think the contractor, it wasn't Tom that called me. It could have been, but I got the call to do it at A&R Recording Studios on 7th Avenue between 51st and 52nd Streets. So that's what happened with that, yeah. Did you meet Bob Dylan at all? Uh, Kind of, uh, yeah. We just sort of shook hands, I guess. I didn't really get to know him that well. But I do remember... In the studio, I was at the piano. I think Paul Griffin was on organ or so. And he, they, we had what they called gobos, G-O-B-O. And there was a barriers set up so that the sounds of our instruments won't leak into the other sounds. And, you know, the guitars, etc. And uh, between every take, I could remember Bob Dylan writing the next verse to the song he was going to sing. I think it was like a Rolling Stone. So he had a piece of paper, and he would jot down the lyrics of what he was getting ready to do next. So it was pretty much a work in progress. But that's the closest I've ever been to him. So, just, as I said, just a casual acquaintance, you know, didn't really get to know him very well at all. I'm hoping you can tell us about the David Letterman Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked about that, yeah. This was 1980, and he was looking for a musical director, so... I went to wherever the studio was, and I auditioned. Chuck Stewart, or I think his name was that, he was the one who produced the $20,000 Pyramid, Dick, uh, Dick Clark. And he saw me, and would you believe I didn't have to play a note? He said to me, look, I don't care if you know anything past Deep Purple, you've got the job. And I got the job. I had never met Dave Letterman and all that sort of thing, and never done a television show at all at that time and I was in the studio with him and that was it so the next thing I got to meet David Letterman and they had a theme that was written by Michael McDonald so we as a musical director had to learn the theme and replicate it because it wasn't written down you know Michael McDonald a lot of those guys they don't write music out they just create it and that's it so I transcribed it and we used it to play on our on the morning show so that's what happened with that show at the time, I think about it now, it was quite something to think about me as a person of color having an orchestra, or I should say, not an orchestra, <laughs> just a quartet. But, you know, David was really zany. And because, I guess, of he was his zaniness, if there's such a word, he, you know, he was on in the morning, but maybe it was too early for people to appreciate the kind of humor that he had. But we lasted for about three months or so, and it was on from 10 to 11.30, and then they cut it down from 10 to 11, you know. And then after that, we were replaced by Card Sharks. And it was uh, Mark uh, Wink Martindale was, the, uh, I think, the, uh, the, the, the person of host, the host of that particular show. So we were replaced by that. But I had a good run out of it. It was great. For three months, uh, we were on television. We went to, I think, some town in Moscow, Idaho, or someplace like that, Iowa. And because David was zany and people would write in a contest in a contest and they say they want to have the, the the show hosted from their city or their town or their house and that's what happened so we did that i think cloris leachman was from that area so i think she was on the show but uh, that's what we did 
But every morning it was on from 10 to 11 to, to 11.30. My drummer, Frank Derrick, we had a, a quartet, and uh, Jay Linhart, very well-known bassist, and Frank Derrick, the drummer, and Bob Rose, guitarist, and I used them for my quartet, you know, my, my, uh, my, my, my band. I didn't realize it until Frank Derrick came over to me one day, and he said, you know, did you realize that you're the only person of color that has a TV show? Never thought about it before, because Billy Taylor had the David Frost show. So I just hadn't thought about it. You know, I didn't realize how fortunate I was and how that I was one of a kind at the time, you know, and I got the job without even auditioning. But uh, there's some nice moments in that. In fact, uh, there's on YouTube, there's a thing called Face Off, David Letterman and I got a chance to play a solo and stuff like that. Evita, from, as a matter of fact, uh, Don't Cry for Me, Argentina from Evita, I did that. So anybody listening can look it up. <laughs> Frank Owens, Face Off, David Letterman. So that was a great experience for me. What do you think of David Letterman? Well, I think that he's an innovator, and in fact, at the time, he, he certainly was, you know. I enjoyed him a lot. I enjoyed, and I wish I had been more personable as Paul Schaefer is at the moment. You know, he's a personality. But I was, uh, I remember one time David Letterman asked me, is there anything you want to tell your, your lady at home or something like that? And I should have thought of something cute, like I didn't put the lock on or, you know, I didn't think about that sort of thing. So I wasn't really a personality. But I was just there as a musician. And I played for many singers, of course, and some of whom I knew. Irene Cara came on the show because she was busy with fame. It was 1980. And uh, I think Benny King and... Uh, Different groups came on the show, and some of whom I knew. So David was was quite nice to me, and I enjoyed him, and I learned a lot about the kind of music that he likes. And there was a gentleman named Stu Smiley. He's gotten up in the world, but he would be like the, I won't want to say flunky, but he would come up to me and tell me what David might want to hear or that sort of thing. Because we had to do music during the commercials, you know, when we were off the air. So there were certain tunes that David wanted to hear. That sort of thing, but I enjoyed David a lot, and it was good. I was very pleased to have been a part of it. You know, with all the things you've done, and there's a lot of things you've had the chance to accompany some really incredible singers. Mm-hmm. You've recorded, conducted all of these different things that you've done. Are there any dreams of yours that you're hoping to fulfill that you haven't yet? Yeah, yeah, you might say that I, there is one. I've been so lazy. I'm a real procrastinator, but I want to write a, a orchestral suite about children's themes. Now, of course, the classical musicians in the past years will write children's suites and things like that, but I would want to write the suite about the things growing up in Harlem, you know, uh, for piano and orchestra and with the soprano. My foster mother would call me out the window because I couldn't play past a certain time, you know, she was pretty strict and I had to be in the house by a certain time. And she would yell out, Frank, Frank, you know, and all my friends down the block would say, hey, Frank, your mother's calling you, <laughs> you know, and I'd have to be in. But uh, I would want to write a suite about that, you know, for orchestra, with boys' choir, that sort of thing, you know, with like the Harlem Boys' Choir, or some some place where they would have a boys' choir, like Atlanta or whatever, and uh, doing the games that we used to play, you know, Ring Olivio and 5, 10, 15, 20, that sort of thing, and have a soprano voice to replicate my mother's calling me, my foster mother actually, calling me out the window. <laughs> so I would like to write a children's suite. That's what I'd like to do, and uh, I've been thinking about it for quite some time. Uh, that would be one of my dreams to do, but I'm too lazy to do it at the moment. <laughs> but that's what I'd love to do, yes. <laughs> As you were mentioning earlier in the interview, it seems like you kind of 
have this commuter kind of uh, experience right now, back and forth from, you said, Washington and New York? That's right, exactly it, yes. I don't want to ever travel again. I've traveled all over the world, you know, with <laughs> Petula Clark and with Johnny Mathis, with Australia and all that sort of stuff, and even with Chubby Checker, you know, South America, that sort of thing. But I don't want to travel anymore, but I do go back and forth on the bus, yes. I take, a, I'll give Vamoose uh, credit. I, I use Vamoose uh, bus lines to go back and forth to New York. I go back and forth from Bethesda to New York. I come up to New York. I do a, uh, sometimes I coach a particular singer on Friday afternoon. I take the bus at 10, 10 something in the morning and get in at New York in mid-afternoon. And then from the singer that I coach, sometimes I go to do the open mic sponsored by Kobe Narita. And then on Saturday, I'm in New York just for the, most of the day, and then I come back to New York, I mean to Washington, because I have ballet classes starting at 9.30 on Sunday morning. So uh, that's, my, that's what I've been doing. Now, I don't have to do this for the next couple of weeks because we will not have an open mic because it's Christmas and because of New Year's. So I can stay down here in Washington. I don't have to travel. It gets to be kind of wearisome, but I enjoy doing the open mic. I play for singers. They like the, the way I accompany them and play for them, so uh, tap dancers, etc. So I do that a lot. I enjoy that a lot. It gets to be quite a trek, but uh, it is, yes, that's what I, that's my commu commutation <laughs> in these days. I do have to come to New York on this coming Tuesday to play a private, in fact, tomorrow, to play a private party at a restaurant, a Christmas party. So I will be in New York for that. But other than that, I will be mostly down here. So when I was very young, my foster mother, we would travel to a city called Town, Branchville, Virginia. Ever since then, I always wanted to live in Washington. So I decided to do that. And I had a house in Long Island, and I sold that, and I moved down here. So I've been down here since about 2001 or two. I'm enjoying it a lot in Washington. I don't like the traffic situation, nor do I like the way the light, the traffic lights, they're too long. <laughs> but let me know about that, you know. But I, I enjoy being here. I do. I really do. So you would say Washington, D.C. has become your home? For the most part, yes. But uh, I would always say New York is still my base, you know, because I have a P.O. box there. I have two apartments in New York, one of which I hardly have ever had. But I do enjoy my, my living. I enjoy how I live. I enjoy the how I've been able to achieve what I've been able to achieve, and I, I've been very fortunate. So I must say music has been very good to me, and I've been fortunate that people have, I guess, liked what I've played, and enough so that I can be hired for the things that I do, especially the ballet classes and the sessions that I've done, too. And I've worked with every singer, you know, including Streisand. I mean, I've worked with, but recorded with, you know, and I've played for Connie Francis. You know, I've, I've just been, I really have a blessed life, I must say. I'm very fortunate. Well, on the recording side of things, of the recordings that you've been a part of, has there been a particularly stellar recording that you made? Uh, aside from, well, you know, the, the, the Cantayola Ribbon, that was one of the big things in my life, I guess, you know. I'm on a Lena Horne album, a couple of them, as a matter of fact. I have my own album also. I did the music of Eddie Haywood. Eddie Haywood was a pianist back uh, in the 90s, etc., particularly, and one of his main uh, concert pieces, not concert pieces, one of his main hits was The Cunning and Sunset. So there was a gentleman named Earl Williams who produced an album of Eddie Haywood's music, and I played all of his selections, you know. So that's one, you can get that, Eddie Haywood. Frank Owens plays the music of Eddie Haywood. I, my first album was 
Oliver Olay. Jimmy Wisner is a producer who lives in, the, well, lives in Jersey, and he came up with the idea of doing the music of Oliver, Lionel Bart score, in a Latin vein. So that happened in 1969. It was released in 1969. I did my own album, of Brown and Serve, which was an R&B album, as I said before. It's not a great album, in my opinion, but there's some nice things on it. One, of course, is Ben, the Michael Jackson tune, uh, and I did that with strings and et cetera. So. But uh, I did some other things. I did uh, oh, Lionel, I mean, um, Aretha Franklin. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, I won't you know, <laughs> try to tout that album, but it's called Brown and Serve, and it's on the Internet, I guess. I won't get a penny from it. It was produced by Bernard Purdy, well-known drummer, and it was in, the label was called Encounter Records, and it was Lloyd Price and Bernard Purdy. Lloyd Price, of course, his fame of personality. So I'm not proud of that album, but it's around in case anybody wants to buy it on the Internet. So it was a 12-inch album. So, uh, But, you know, I, I, I've done it, and uh, but I'm getting ready to redo Oliver because I want to do a couple of things over my jazz playing at the time wasn't all that well done, in my opinion, so I've redone it, and I've edited it, and I just haven't put it out yet. So it's going to be called now, Frank Owens Plays the Music of Oliver with a Latin Twist. That's what I'm going to redo it as, you know. But Jimmy Wisner had the right. Uh, it was nice that he thought about doing it in a, in a Latin vein. So I'd like to get that underway. I just haven't done so yet. Big, big procrastinator that I am. <laughs> <laughs> So I understand that you did some work at the Apollo. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I did. You know, as I mentioned before, I I did a I was an amateur myself years ago, and I won first prize for a couple of times. Anyway, bottom line is, later on in later years, uh, they were doing a show called Showtime at the Apollo, and Melba Moore. They asked her, and she said, "I don't know who you're going to get for the musical director, but you should really get Frank Owens." And that was a nice plug, and I worked with Melba, so that's how I got the job, and it was quite nice. I enjoyed it for like about seven years until it was taken over by Ray Chu, who, of course, moved, went on to do, I think, the talent, one of those talent shows, like Dancing with the Stars or something like that. But that was a good thing for me, and I was, I was kind of famous <laughs> at the time. Yeah, so every week they would say, Frank Owens in the band, and uh, that was exposure all every week it was for seven years so i really enjoyed that a lot i forgot to mention that what is the best thing about being frank owens <laughs> oh i don't know um i've been fortunate i've had a nice life i've been i guess i've how shall i say i've had many liaisons with ladies and things of that sort i've been fortunate that i've been able my health has been pretty good you know i'm not happy about the fact that i've lost some hair and I always say that I used to be cute. <laughs> In fact, if I die, if and when I die, if I die, I want the tombstone to say, I used to be cute. That's what I'd like it to say. <laughs> when I think that W.C. Fields died, I think the tombstone says, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. He hated Philadelphia, you know. <laughs> so I've been, I guess I've been, as I, you know, I've been, I mean, I, can, I, I guess, I, I guess the people that I have, the friends that I have, and that sort of thing, and I guess I'm different from a lot of other pianists. You know, I don't consider myself a jazz pianist. So I like the fact that the things that I do are appreciated by many. So, and then I'm able to do all different types of music. So I guess that's one of the best things about being Frank Owens. And I have a nice life, and there's a lady in my life. And so I'm, I'm fortunate. 
guess I'm, I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. I'm blessed. I am. How would you define Frank Owens? <laughs> oh, I don't know. How to, <laughs> you'd have to ask somebody else about me, you know, but I, I think I'm friendly and warm and friendly and, and giving and generous, etc. Lots of photographs. I've done many photographs of different celebrities, you know, and I have had a photo exhibit. I have. Um, so there are many things that I... I'm, I'm multifaceted, I suppose, and People might say of me that I hope that they don't think that I'm selfish and egotistical. I don't think so. I'm modest, and I don't, I feel, they, people said that Virgoans don't really know how to accept compliments and things of that sort, so that could possibly be it. But I'm very particular about the things that I may do, and if I make a mistake, I'm the one that hears it, and other people don't, and I want to do it over, especially in a recording session, so... I'm very particular about that. I don't want anything to be out there that is not of my sanction. You know, I want to be. Uh, I want my performances to be perfect if possible. People say you can't play perfectly, but I think you can. I aspire to play better uh, uh, classical music. I hear people that play well and, and that sort of thing. You got the people such as uh, Andre Watts and Murray Pariah and those kinds of people. And I listen to classical music when I'm here in Washington for the most part. So they play flawlessly, and I'd like to get to that level. But I play some things myself, and I'm fortunate that I can play what I play. I play a lot better than I used to, of course, you know, so I guess so. Uh, I just hope that people think of me as a nice guy. <laughs> I guess I think I could say that. Well, you are a nice guy, <laughs> and <laughs> you do have a, a humbleness to you. You're very talented, but also you're humble and down-to-earth. And I didn't know you were a fellow Virgoan. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, September 1st. As a matter of fact, every year, uh, every summer, from May through the latter part of September, they have a, a Piano in the Park series at Bryant Park. That's the big park between, behind the public library in New York, you know, behind the, the big public library. And every week they have a different pianist. And uh, they have Dick Hyman, people of that sort, John Weber, Roy Eaton, many different pianists they have there. And I play. I usually play the last week of August or the first week of September. So I do that every year. So I do enjoy doing that. I think you can find it on YouTube or on the Internet or so. And sometimes I make mistakes, and I hate when people... I mean, I, I hate when people hear them, if they do, you know, but people don't necessarily. But I, I want to be the... the I'm, I'm the arbiter of uh, trying to play perfectly, you know. But I play for a variety of, of people. People come into the park. They have their lunch there. And I've been told that I draw the most people there, so I'm fortunate. and I'm, I feel good about that, you know, that people like my playing. So that's one of the things that I do yearly, every year. So I'm going to leave the interview this way, open-ended. For anyone who's listening in, wherever they might be, what would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Quite some interesting, pertinent questions, Paul. Uh, I would say, well, I, I, it would be nice if uh, the people who do hear me get to hear me in person or by means of recordings or that sort of thing. You know, I'm thrilled myself when I hear things that I've done on the radio. You know, I produced a singer down here, Chad Carter, and I produced his album. And it was only there's a station out here that plays jazz music and of course the American songbook and one day they decided to play 
a tune that I had done with him, you know, I've grown accustomed to his face. So I'm thrilled when I hear my music, you know. I did a commercial once years ago. There was a recording studio on the East 62nd Street, and they came in and they said that they wanted a sort of a, a Bobby Short feel. Bobby Short, of course, the well-known entertainer that worked at the Carlisle for years. And I said, okay, how come you didn't get Bobby Short? Well, we can't get Bobby Short because he's too expensive. And they asked me to sing a song, and I sang a commercial. It was Tribunal Vermouth. And one day I was driving in my car, and I heard it. It was around Christmas time, and I wanted to tell somebody, but I couldn't tell anybody because I was by myself. <laughs> so that's the only time I've done a singing commercial, but I was proud of that. It is called Vermouth. It's a Vermouth uh, Tribunal Vermouth, and uh, I, I guess I didn't sound too bad at all, you know. So, but I've been fortunate that I've done some very classy jingles. I worked for a woman named Louise Messina, who uh, produced a lot of jingles, and she hired me. Just got out of the blue, she decided to use me, and I did lots of jingles for cars, you know, Buick Chrysler, Buick Opel, all kinds of commercials, and I did a lot of jingles in those years. So, as a matter of fact, uh, there's a note of there was a guitar player I wanted to hire named Jack Cavari. And I wanted him for my David Letterman sh show, but he was busy doing jingles, and they didn't want to miss anything. <laughs> but Bob Rose was equally gifted, so uh, we were on it. So uh, that was the highlight of my life, too. The highlight of my life, I would say, one of the things was playing for uh, Lena Horne, of course, and also doing the Albert Hall concert with Petula Clark. That was, those were the highlights of my life, I suppose you could say. Well, you have my curiosity up, because I've heard your piano playing, but... Maybe okay. maybe you'll sing us a line from a song that you like. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. Let me see. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I happen to be by my piano, but I don't know what I can sing necessarily. Uh, the first, let me see. I can do this. <laughs> for the Tribunal of Vermouth, if I can remember the first... Uh, 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 July in Juneau, I like something in Juneau, you grow for cream trees, I like breeze, but when it comes to our vermouth, we both agree, Tribunal's the one for you and me. I can't remember the lyric, that was a lot of years ago, you know, but I can't remember that, you know, that lyric at all. I wrote another song for Kobe Narita. But I can't think of all of the lyrics. I don't have. I wish you had prepared me. I would have gotten <laughs> my lyrics in front of me. I would have been able to do that, you know. But it was a song that. Um, can't see a show. You're short on dough. Don't know where to go. But you're in the know to go midtown at Kobe's place. Yeah, but I can't. I don't remember anything like that. I could play a box selection, but. <laughs> I don't think you want to hear that, but anyway. Well, I would. <laughs> hey, all right, I'll play it. This is very short. It's a two-part invention by Bach. Okay.
wasn't perfect, but it'll, it'll do. <laughs> nice. But thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Paul. Thank you. Oh, my oh. pleasure. I have to say, I've been doing this show for 14 years now, and this was an unprecedented show. I have never had a guest who played the piano <laughs> on the air. <laughs> that was great. Oh, well, thank you, Paul. Thanks very much. I, I was surprised, and I was, I guess, a little bit of... Uh, at, a, at, a, at a stand, I didn't know. I said, "Well, why did this guy want to interview me? And who is he? And all that sort of stuff." But I'm, I'm pleased. If you're happy, then I'm happy, and I'm, I'm, I'm just flattered that you wanted to interview me. Thank you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the Frank Owens interview. I'm glad I got in touch with Mr. Owens. I hope we get a chance to speak again. Wasn't it cool how he played the piano? I also liked hearing him sing. I don't know what it is, but especially when the person is not a singer, I like to try to get them to sing. I might try to do that more on future episodes. Well, folks, I'm finally starting to see this podcast pick up some steam. Been hosting the radio show for 14 years now. Some of you know that, some of you don't. And this podcast is kind of an extension of that. I admit, I was kind of getting frustrated. I kind of talked about that in an earlier episode, but now I'm really hearing from people very enthusiastic things. It really means a lot. If you haven't yet, consider subscribing to the podcast. It ensures that you'll receive every single episode. It's a pleasure to have you with us. We've got a few more episodes left here in the year 2017, and I think we've got some good shows for you coming up in 2018. All right, folks, that's all I've got. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>